let's pray. Father, that is our heart's desire because of who you are and what you have done in and through your son, Jesus. The grave holds no power over us. Sin, no authority over us. Death, we cannot be held by it because of Jesus. So praise to you, the Father. Praise to the Son. Praise to the Spirit, three in one. And may even now, as we hear your word, may our hearts be praising you as we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to love, knees to bow, and hands and feet to obey. Because Jesus lives today. In his name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. And thank you for singing so well this morning. I invite you to open your copies of the scriptures to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find a Bible near you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you there, page 1014 in that copy of the church Bible. As you're finding your place there in Mark chapter 16, just a couple of um, opening comments here. First of all, I want to say a special thank you to Pastor Brandon for speaking last week in my absence. And I want to say a special thank you to you as a church family for allowing our family a vacation. It was rough living for Jesus in Florida last week. And we enjoyed the time there. We worshiped last Sunday at Providence Church in Ormond Beach with brothers and sisters in Jesus who love the same Jesus we do. And we had a great time there with them. But we were missing you. This is our church family. And we love our church family. And we are so thankful to be back with you this morning, even though as we come back from Florida, we are greeted with snow. You are here on a very special Sunday morning. You may not realize that, but it is a very special Sunday morning because this morning we will conclude our study in the Gospel of Mark, 67 sermons on Mark's Gospel. We began looking at Mark's Gospel in February of 2022, and now we will complete it today by God's grace as we've watched as we've followed, as we've listened to Jesus living his life on purpose for us. He has come. He d does complete the work the Father has given him to do. And he now rises victorious over the dead and over sin. It is an appropriate ending to Mark's gospel. This is our hope. This is our Jesus. He is our life. So let's read, beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 16 together. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint the body of Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. 
And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then Mark does a mic drop. Now I see some of you looking at me kind of funny, wondering what our time in Florida did to me. Maybe you're thinking, but Pastor Ken, we're not done yet. What about verses 9 through 20? Why are you stopping with verse 8? Well, I'm glad you've asked that question because I've known this question would be coming and that I'd have some explaining to do. I know that some of you this morning are holding in your hands a King James Version or a New King James Version, and it appears that I'm leaving you hanging by not preaching on, on verses 9 through 20. Others of you have an English Standard Version or a New American Standard Version or the Christian Standard Bible, and verses 9 through 20 are in brackets with a heading that reads something like this. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. Now, I don't have time to explain this exhaustively this morning, and so I'm just going to come right out and say this. I believe the Gospel of Mark concludes with verse 8. Before I tell you why, let me make something clear. This is not a debate over the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. The very reason there is a debate over these verses is because conservative Christians revere the Bible as the authoritative Word of God. Amen? And if the Bible doesn't just contain the Word of God, but is the very Word of God then we don't have the right to subtract anything from it or add anything to it. And so although I grew up on the King James Version and memorized from the King James Version, there are two reasons I am convinced that verses 9 through 20 are likely not Mark's writing. First, the earliest manuscripts do not contain these verses and so it appears that over time, scribes who were copying Mark's gospel added in these verses to reflect the ending of the other gospel accounts. Now, there's something we need to understand here. We need to understand that we do not possess a single original manuscript of any biblical writing. All we have are copies some of them of the entire New Testament, but most of those copies are of single books or fragments of just a few verses. But in the 400 years since the King James Version was translated, much more manuscript evidence has come to light, and that evidence supports the shorter ending of Mark. And then the shorter ending seems to fit better with Mark's writing style. I mean, we've, as we've made our way through Mark's gospel, we've learned that Mark is short and sweet and to the point, just like my preaching. Okay, so 
Anyway, Mark's writing style is short and sweet and to the point. Remember, he's fast-paced. He's action-packed. His favorite word is the word immediately. I mean, right out of the gate in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, here's what Mark says. He says, here's the beginning of the good news of Jesus. And then, boom, here comes John the Baptist crying out, there's one coming after me whose sandal straps I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And then Mark says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. That's all Mark says in introducing us to Jesus. There's nothing about Jesus' birth. There's nothing about his childhood. It's just John the Baptist saying, look, here is Jesus. He's here, the Messiah. And it seems that Mark ends his gospel just as abruptly as he began it, telling us that Jesus finished what he came to do. He died and rose again. The end. Now, I realize in a room this size with this many people that there are some of you who are going to disagree with me on this. I mean, I have family members and friends who disagree with me, and that's okay, because this is not something that should come between us. What we read in verses 9 through 20 doesn't contradict what is written elsewhere in Scripture, and it doesn't add anything that isn't written elsewhere in Scripture. Now, now you go to verse 18, there's going to be some questions about snake handling and poison drinking, so let me just say this, please don't do either of those. But acknowledging that this is a questionable text doesn't undermine the authority of Scripture. It shows that we take the authenticity of Scripture seriously. Because as Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, every word of our God will stand the test of time. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There, I'm done with that part. I'm glad that's done. Because the older I get, the more I dislike any controversy. And the good news about verses 1 through 8 is that there is nothing controversial here. Because the big idea is that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. How many of you have ever heard the saying that everything rises or falls on leadership? Anybody ever heard that? Okay, seven of you, eight of you. You, it's okay for you to participate. Listen, I get that this is a Baptist church, but you can raise your hand above your shoulder. It's okay. So let me ask the question again. I know I've been gone for a week, you know, and, and, and maybe you've grown unaccustomed to my preaching style. So let me ask it again. How many of you have heard the saying, everything rises and falls on leadership? Okay, three more than the first time. <laughs> For the Christian, everything rises and falls on the resurrection. Not just some things, or not even most things, everything. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then God is a liar, Jesus was a lunatic, and Christianity is a sham. As 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19 says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied because we are still in our sins. 
But Mark tells us that Jesus did rise from the dead. The devil has been defeated. Sin has been disarmed. And death has died because Jesus is risen. And to get just how transformational this is for Jesus' disciples. We need to remember that when we arrive at verse 1, verse 1 of Mark chapter 16, that Jesus has been dead for nearly 40 hours. And the disciples are beside themselves. Is this how it all ends? Is this it? Is this what we gave our lives to? A dead, lifeless body lying in a tomb. They're doubting and questioning and fearing because on Friday, Jesus confounded their expectations. How do we respond when God confounds our expectations? Maybe it's your career and God blew it up. Maybe it's your marriage and it ended badly. Maybe it's that God took your spouse or your child way too soon. He just hasn't lived up to your expectations. You are not alone this morning. That's Jesus' followers on Friday and Saturday while Jesus' body is lying in a tomb. They expected crowns and thrones and kingdoms, but now Jesus is dead. Their hopes are dashed. Their dreams are shattered. Their plans are blown up. But Friday, friends, Friday is not the end of the story. Sunday is... And on Sunday, Jesus exceeds their wildest expectations. Listen, the empty tomb proves that God knows what he is doing. The empty tomb proves that you can trust him even when you don't get what he is doing because the resurrection of Jesus is a true event. That's what Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome are about to discover because as the sun comes up on Sunday morning, they are on their way to the tomb. And according to Luke chapter 24, there's a woman there named Joanna as well. And because I'm married to a Joanna, I always include her in the resurrection account. And so the scene opens here in Mark 16 with these women coming to the tomb. And, and why are they coming? Why are they coming? Um... They're coming because they have high hopes. They're coming because they want to see Jesus walking out of the tomb all Friday night, all Saturday and Saturday night. Their anticipation has been building. It's like Christmas morning for these ladies. And so they're sprinting to the tomb to catch a glimpse of the resurrection. Is that what your Bible says? If it does, get a different Bible. Because the women aren't coming to the tomb to catch a glimpse of a living Jesus. They're coming to anoint the body of a dead Jesus. That's why they're carrying ointments and perfumes and spices. Because in that day, they didn't embalm a dead body. They anointed it with spices and ointments and perfumes. And that's what these women are coming to do. And that took some real guts. Some major courage 
Because they are coming to the tomb of a man labeled public enemy number one by both the Jews and the Romans. And that's why on Saturday, the Roman authority pilot deploys a security guard, a, a, a security guards, a, a, a group of guards, to guard the tomb. He even seals the stone that covered the entrance to the tomb so that no one could get in or out. And yet these women set out for the tomb. They will be the initial eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And that, my friends, is significant evidence that the resurrection is a reality. Because in that day, women were not allowed to even testify in a Jewish court of law. So Mark isn't telling us that women were the first eyewitnesses to coax us to believe his hoax. No, he's telling us that because women are the first eyewitnesses. That's what happened. And with God, that's the way it often happens. Because he specializes in using the marginalized and the overlooked. He delights in doing the unexpected and so he's going to use these women who, as they approach the tomb, they are going to learn that the soldiers are no longer there. Matthew tells us that sometime before sunrise, the earth had quaked and an angel had descended from heaven and rolled the stone away. And the soldiers who were there were so overcome with fear that they pass out and then they walk out on their assignment. They leave the tomb altogether. I love that because that's how the enemy responds when heaven shows up. So the soldiers are gone. The stone is rolled away. But the women don't know any of that. And so as they're making their way to the tomb, they're asking the same question we would be asking. Who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? I mean, that's a valid concern, it's an, and it's a valid concern because we read in verse 4 that it's a very large stone. It is, in the Greek, a mega stone. These women, these, these women can't move it on their own. But no worries, heaven has moved it for them. Not to let Jesus out, but to let them in. And so when they arrive and see the stone has been rolled away, they do what we would have done. They enter the tomb, fully expecting to see the body of Jesus in that tomb. Because remember, according to Mark 15, verse 47, they had seen Jesus buried in this tomb on Friday afternoon. And that's why when they walk into the tomb... They aren't just shocked by what they don't see, the body of Jesus. They're shocked by what they do see, a young man dressed in white. The other gospel accounts tell us that he's an angel. But it isn't just his presence that grips them. It's his words in verse 6. And notice the verb tenses here. As the angel says to the women, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See, look. Look at the place where they laid him. And they do. They see where Jesus' body had been. But now it's gone because Jesus is alive. This is God's grace. 
to these women. Just think about this. Without the angel to interpret what they're seeing, their minds would have raced in a hundred directions and sorted through a thousand options. Did someone steal the body? Are we really at the right tomb? Was Jesus faking his death? But to spare these women from sorting through all those questions, God dispatches an angel to give them the answer. And that's the second piece of evidence that the resurrection is true. Heaven shows up on earth to interpret the empty tomb. As these women are standing in that tomb, the only reason they know what has happened is because God has told them through his angel. And what we hold in our hands this morning is just that. God answering our questions, revealing to us all we need to know. He does not leave us to sort through life's questions on our own. He has given us His Word. It's just as sure and just as reliable as that angel in this tomb on that Sunday morning. Psalm 119, verse 130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. God doesn't leave these women or us groping for answers. He answers our questions. He interprets life for us, including the empty tomb. And as the women take it all in, astonishment seizes them. It's a third piece of evidence that the resurrection is a reality. It's that they are scared to death. In fact, Mark wants us to know how, how, how scared they are when he tells us four different times using four different Greek words. Verse 5, they're alarmed. Verse 8, they're trembling. They're seized by astonishment because they are afraid. They're scared speechless. They're trembling and shaking. It is real and raw emotion. It reminds me of the day we were driving into the mountains in eastern Tennessee. And because of the hairpin turns on I-40 in the mountains, the speed limit drops from 70 to 45. And as we're making our way into that, by the way, how many of you have ever been on that stretch of highway? A number of you. As we're making our way into that first hairpin turn, we were in the right lane where those who abide by the law drive. <laughs> and in the side mirror, I see a woman in a Dodge Charger. She's in the left lane. She's doing 70. And as she comes alongside of us, she's still doing 70. And she can't hold the turn. She begins veering into our lane right beside us, and so I slam on the brakes just in time as she then veers all the way over into our lane and onto the shoulder where she regains control just in the nick of time. When we caught up with her, she had stopped her vehicle on the shoulder, and I could see her holding her head in her hands, shaking and trembling and terrified. 
It isn't like the videos we see where kids are jumping out from behind doors and furniture, supposedly scaring their parents, but it's obvious that it's all a setup and a put on. You seen those videos? Because you can't fake this kind of fear. And that's why Mark tells us four different times that the, 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 the fear these women feel is real. And that's why the angel then answers their fear with words of assurance and gives them an assignment. Go tell Jesus' disciples and Peter. Why does the angel single out Peter? Because Peter had blown it big time. His only hope was a risen Jesus who would free him from his horrific sins. Go tell Jesus' disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he said. But notice the ladies, they can't say anything. Terror has seized them. Not just a, a knees-knocking kind of terror, but a take-your-breath-away kind of terror. I mean, how do you process this? How do you explain this? You can't. That's why they're speechless. On their way to the tomb, they're talking as they're walking, but on their way from the tomb, they're running in silence. It isn't just what they've seen that's left them speechless. It's what they haven't seen. The body of Jesus is not there. And that's the fourth piece of evidence that the resurrection is true. Because the once-occupied tomb is occupied no longer. It's empty. They've seen it. They've heard it. And now they know it. Jesus is no longer dead. He is alive. So what? I mean, that's the big question we should be asking from this scene. What difference does the resurrection make? What makes the resurrection not just a transformational event, but the transformational event in the lives of his people? I mean, it's what we see happen in the lives of Jesus' own disciples. Because after Jesus rises from the dead and then ascends to the Father and the Holy Spirit comes, these disciples are new guys. I mean, their doubts give way to faith. Their fear turns to courage. When we read the book of Acts, we discover that this, that this group of rehabilitated scaredy cats turns the world upside down with the message that Jesus is alive. How do you explain that? How do you explain that all of these guys, save one, will die to get the message of the risen Jesus out to the world? Here's how you explain it. The resurrection changes everything. Not just for them in the first century, but for us today. Now, I, I, I want you to know that um, when I say everything, the, the, the resurrection changes everything, I mean everything, which means that we could talk about the implications of the resurrection for hours and hours and hours. How many of you would like to do that this morning? All right. A few of you are going to be stoned on your way out. Okay. So, so um, I've, I've narrowed it down to three. 
Three ways the resurrection radically affects who we are, how we live, what we think, what we love. And with this, we conclude our study of Mark's gospel. Three takeaways. Number one, the resurrection gives real reason to entrust your life to Jesus. The resurrection gives real reason to entrust your life to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to to follow Jesus. You see, the resurrection doesn't allow you the option of labeling Jesus a nice guy or a good teacher who said some really cool stuff. You can't say that Jesus was a philosopher like Socrates or Confucius or a religious leader like Muhammad or the Buddha or a political revolutionary like Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. because all of those men died and are still dead. Jesus died and rose again. You have to deal with that. You have to come down somewhere on that. Either you believe or you reject. Because if the resurrection is true, then Jesus deserves all our worship and all our allegiance and all our uh, our adoration and all our dedication. He deserves our all-out, all-in commitment from this day forever. And that's true for you young people. You young people, you junior hires, high schoolers, college aged. Many of you are growing up with parents who love and follow Jesus. But the jury is still out on your faith in Jesus. Because some of you are more a fan of Taylor Swift than you are a follower of Jesus. Yeah, I know, I said it. Some of you know your favorite some of you know your favorite influencer better than you know Jesus. Some of you think that the Bible's morality is outdated and its claims of exclusivity are narrow-minded and bigoted because you're believing your college prof rather than Jesus. But there is an empty tomb that a group of women ran from in fear and trembling. And what are you going to do with that? Because 1 Peter 1 verse 21 says that God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Your faith and hope. A resurrected Jesus leaves no room for half-hearted believing or going through the motions following The God of this universe breathed life into the dead body of his son so that your faith and hope would be in him. Is it? I'm not just talking to the young people anymore. I'm talking to all of us in this room. Even those who have been members of this church for 50 or 60 years. Is your faith truly in Jesus? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. Is that you? We follow Jesus for 16 chapters. We've seen him heal the sick 
release people from their demons and even raise the dead. Do you believe? Do you believe? Romans 10 verse 9 says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Can I ask what awaits you on the other side of your final breath here on earth? Is it eternal death or eternal life? I plead with you, come to Jesus. Believe on Jesus. Because when your faith and hope are in Him, then secondly, the resurrection gives eternal meaning to everything you are and everything you do. Maybe you've never considered that what happened in a tomb on this Sunday gives eternal meaning to your every day. Because as Paul concludes his teaching on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It is not in vain. You sharing the gospel with your unbelieving friend or family member when they don't believe and they don't receive Jesus, it is not in vain. Chasing kids around the nursery because you serve in the church nursery on Sunday mornings is not in vain. Teaching little kids Sunday school on Sunday mornings, listening to Bible verses in Awana on Wednesday nights, it all matters. Every moment matters because Jesus lives. So when you crawl out of bed in the morning or fall out of the bed, whatever you do, and go to work tomorrow, it matters. Because you are serving a risen king. Students, your math matters. Husbands and wives, your marriage matters. Parents, when that pile of laundry just keeps growing and you're cleaning up puke for the fourth time that night, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your parenting work because it's the Lord's work. It's not in vain. So live and work full throttle, pedal to the metal for our risen King because thirdly, the resurrection gives enduring hope in life's darkest moments. You don't have to live very long to learn that life is full of dark moments. Friends betray us. A husband or wife or child walks away from us. As we grow older, our health begins to fail us, and eventually death itself will come for us. But there is real hope for you in those dark moments. Because Jesus lives, there is coming a day when Revelation 21 verse 4 will be our eternal reality. He will wipe away every 
appear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, all those things will have passed away. The pain, the hurt, the evil, the death, all the dark moments will be forever forgotten in the light of Jesus' resurrection. And in a sin-cursed world, it's impossible for us to wrap our minds around the fact that there is coming a day with no more hospitals and no more funerals. Because there is coming a day with no diabetes or heart disease or dementia or cancer. There is coming a day with no police officers patrolling, no lawyers practicing, no judges adjudicating, and no politicians politicking. There is coming a day without the pain of a broken marriage or the loss of a child or spouse. There is coming a day when all of that will be forever done. Because the risen Jesus will be visibly ruling and reigning on the throne of this universe as the one and only unrivaled king. There is coming a day. So in life's darkest moments, read your story through the lens of Jesus' story and his empty tomb. It isn't just an appropriate ending to Mark's gospel. It's the exclamation point to the very first words he wrote all the way back in chapter 1. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's good news. Because Jesus lives, and because he lives, we will live with him. And that changes everything forever and ever. Amen. Father, may you take your truth, write it deep in our hearts, shape and fashion us in your likeness, the likeness of your Son. Accomplish your will. Do your work in the hearts of your people and in my heart too. In Jesus' name, amen.